really exciting to be able to jump into this Crispin Sermon Series, which we started, Pastor Brad started last week, called Jesus is Better. You might say, that's fairly simple and obvious. It is, but it's something that I think is worth repeating and worth reminding ourselves and a theme that you can see as you read throughout the book of Hebrews, which, Lord willing, is what we're going to spend the remainder of this series in. So Barb read from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 9, and that's where we're going to be spending the most of our time uh, today. But throughout this past week, it was almost impossible to turn on the TV or scroll through any news feed or social media feed and not see a picture or a tribute or some words reminding us of what happened almost nine days ago when George Herbert Walker Bush had died. He was a noble man who desired to serve his family, his country, and I believe his God with his life. And I bring that up to ask you this question. In what way, if at all, are you affected by the death of a famous woman or a famous man? Does that have an impact on you at all? Because you probably didn't know President Bush personally. I mean, maybe you did, but likely you, you, you probably didn't. But there's still a certain sadness for us who watch from afar, right? You may have been saddened by uh, his passing and remembering the things that he did or remembering where you were in life when he served as vice president from 1980 to 1988 or as president of our country from 88 to 92. I can remember sitting and watching uh, the, 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 the Persian Gulf War and remember him giving that address telling us that we were going to be engaging as a country. I remember watching that even as, as, as a kid. So it might hearken back memories to where you were when he led us, but still you probably didn't know him personally. So I'm just curious, how does it affect you when you hear of the passing of a famous man or woman? I mean, you may have been saddened by his passing. I was a little saddened. My, my heart uh, turns a little bit when I see all the flags at half-mast, and they will be till December 30th. Uh, but it certainly didn't compare with those who miss him, not as a statesman, but as a dad, as a grandfather, or a great-grandfather, or a very good friend. They will now begin to experience all the firsts without him, right? The first Christmas without grandpa, the first Father's Day without dad, things like that. And it's different when you attend a funeral. When you attend a funeral, you think about the person, the deceased, as you knew them, as you loved them. You reflect upon memories that you had with them. But sometimes you attend a funeral and you may not have personally known the deceased, Perhaps it was a friend or a friend of a loved one. Uh, you have very little memories, and so you may not grieve like others. And sometimes you just admire the deceased. Others grieve their passing, but sometimes you go to support those who are grieving. But you yourself, you're not necessarily grieving. You're not necessarily deeply affected and deeply moved by this loss. But everyone, whether you're watching from afar on a television set, whether you knew the deceased personally, whether you know other mourners and you're there to support them for whatever reason that you're involved in a funeral, whether watching on a phone screen or standing right there at a casket, we have this one thing in common. Everyone, to some degree, is thinking about death. Uh, to varying degrees, it crosses our mind, the brevity of life, the fact that we are mortal in and of ourselves, the fact that death comes for us all, it crosses everybody's mind. It crosses the Christian's mind, it crosses the atheist's mind, everyone is going, nobody denies that we are going to die. The death rate is one apiece. 
So everybody, to some degree, is thinking about death. And so before we get into the text today, I want to ask you about you. I want to ask you about you. What are your thoughts and your feelings when you are faced with death? When that reminder comes to you that you yourself are also going to die. Some of you have faced a significant loss this past year. I know it. Some of you have faced it several times in recent months, even within this one year. It's been a hard year. But to some degree, however, most, maybe all of us have faced the loss of a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, someone we know. What about you? What are your thoughts and your feelings when you are faced with death? What do you feel when you are reminded, not that someone else has died, but that you yourself will one day die? Maybe it's a, it's a sense of wonder, right? I think we all, the Bible-believing Christians even, we all kind of wonder. I mean, you've, you've never experienced death personally, and, and we've never known someone to experience death personally. And I don't care what the yellow, little yellow book said. That kid didn't do it. Right? He didn't experience death, go to heaven, and come back. His last name was Malarkey. Did we not see this coming? I mean, I mean we, it doesn't, nobody has ever experienced death and come back and say, here's what it's like. It was actually really scary at this one point, but then all of a sudden I saw the face of Christ. Like, no, we don't know what that is like. No one has been there to come back to tell us about it. And so it's natural to, to wonder. As much as I might know my Bible, I still kind of wonder. I wonder what it's like to experience it. What's it like to cross into eternity? I also think it's very natural, right, wrong, or indifferent, to fear. We tend to fear what we don't know. Even though we know the outcome, even though who, those of us who know and love the Savior know that it's going to be better, we still don't know what it's like, right? We still don't know what that transition is like. I think it's natural. It might not be right, but it's natural for us to fear because we don't know. As little as we know about life, we know even less about death. And one thing we do know is it is certainly coming. But beyond that, we speculate. We speculate about how it feels, what the final moments might be like, what first moments in eternity are like. And so the uncertainty can give way to fear. But today, we're looking at God's word to remind us that Jesus is what? Jesus is better. He is better. And the title of the sermon today is God Shatters the Fear of Death by His Son. And so what I'm actually going to try to do for us today is tie together Jesus being better, the death of former President Bush, and the book of Hebrews all together in one sermon. Merry Christmas, my gift to you. Let's see how it goes. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Let's take a look at it again. Verse 9 says this, we, But we see Him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. Many speculate, but we do not know. But we do know the intended recipients. This book was intended for who? Hebrews. Don't be shy. Yeah, just go with it. Hebrews, right? Intended for the Hebrews. This person is writing to the Hebrews. And what we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation of Christ, the fact that God the Son, the second person in the Trinity, became a man, entered the world through the womb of a virgin, entered the world through the womb of a woman just like you and I did. 
right, entered the world in that same way. That's a hard enough concept to grasp. And it was especially hard for Jews to grasp. Even more so, watch this, it was hard for them to understand why God would have to die or even could die, right? How could the anointed one, the Messiah, be the victim of death? It's a valid question, as it, as it doesn't seem very like God ever to be defeated by anyone or anything. And so what you'll notice is that any time throughout the New Testament, as you read through your Bible, any time the gospel is preached to Jews in the New Testament, you'll notice the preacher or the writer, the person penning the words, goes out of his or her way to explain, listen, not that Jesus died, but Why? Not the fact that Jesus died. They're writing to people within the first century. People sometimes wrestled with the resurrection. They didn't wrestle with his death. Word got around. But had to explain particularly to Jewish people why. Not that he died, but why he had to die. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 2 and turn back to the book of Acts. I just want you to see an example. Acts chapter 17. Look at Paul who is in a synagogue... And what he says at that time. Acts chapter 17. And look at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was what? Necessary, right? For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He wasn't explaining that it happened. He had to reason with them to show them why it had to happen. Why this doesn't nullify the fact that this was very God, but it had to happen. Paul is in a synagogue there explaining not the fact that Jesus died, but why Jesus died. So getting back to Hebrews 2, a similar thing is happening here. The writer of Hebrews uh, is explaining to the Hebrews not just the fact, but explaining why? And so this takes us to our first point in verse 9, and that was this. Jesus was born to suffer and die. He was born to suffer and die. Now, in case you are ever wondering what an angel's funeral is like, they don't exist. Why? Because angels don't what? Die. They don't die. So if Jesus died, how can he be greater than angels who never die? Right, usually the person who never dies is greater than the person who does die. So how could Jesus be greater than angels who never die? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 9. He was, for what? A little while lower than the angels, like you and like me. We're lower than angels in the sense that we are going to die. We are mortal beings. He was made a little lower than the angels so that he could, what? Become a man. And he became a man. Do you know why? So he could die. That's literally his life's purpose. Jesus was born to die. Why did the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, become a man? One reason, to die. If he didn't become a man, if he didn't become flesh and blood like you and me, if he didn't become a human being, he couldn't die. He would never have died. It would be impossible for him to die because he is very God. And that's our first point, was that Jesus was born to die. And you might say, okay, well, that's... Kind of obvious. You said in the beginning, everybody dies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody here is going to die, which is true. It's a part of life. Every one of us is going to die. None of us would say our life's purpose is 
to die. None of us would say we were born to, why did, why did God send you into the world? Oh, me? I'm actually going to die. We would say, well, yeah, so am I. So is he, so is she, so is he. I mean, we're all going to die. That's not our purpose. That's just our end, right? That's how we're going to end. Jesus' purpose, the reason he became a man, the reason he became alive in the flesh was simply to die. That was his primary purpose. Jesus was born to die. I think back on the birth of my children. I have four kids, and usually right after they're born, I got to witness all four of their births, and right when they come out and they come screaming into the world, they look so, so bizarre, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Like, right, they come out, they've got gook on them, they're odd colors, they're kind of wrinkly, and they're just, I mean, and let's face it, I mean, when we all entered the world, we probably look similarly, right? So no, no, no judgment, it's fine. But I mean, they just look kind of bizarre. Then we get them cleaned up, and we wrap them around in a cloth, and sometimes we put gook on their eyes and all this other stuff, and then they're sitting there like, what just happened? And laying close to mom, and their little hands look all pruney, and they have this bizarre color, but after some time, they gain some weight, and the little pruney, bizarre colors, they look all just pudgy, right? Just that baby chub where then there's dimples. I like to say there's dimples where joints should be, right? Like there's creases here. It's like, is there even, I don't know if there's bones there. It just kind of folds. It just folds from like lipid to lipid. It just goes back and forth. Then like mid-arm, right? Some, some of the kids, mid-arm, mid-thigh, there's just roll upon roll like the Michelin man, right? Just, just after roll after roll after roll. Just those pudgy little hands, those pudgy little feet, the sweet-smelling head of a baby. Am I right? Like the way a baby's head smells is just so beautiful and so sweet. And the soft baby body that you just want to hug and hold and squeeze, it's so warm. Jesus had these same things. There's no reason for us to believe that he was not pudgy. No reason for us to believe that his head did not smell amazing. No reason for us to believe that he didn't have cute little dimply, like, hands and feet and joints. Jesus had chubby little hands that were literally created to take two huge nails. And little feet whose primary purpose was to walk him through life so he could walk up a hill and carry and be nailed to a cross. Life's purpose, Jesus was born to die. Sweet-smelling head with the purpose of wearing a crown of thorns. The soft, beautiful baby body existing for really primarily one reason, to be pierced in its side. Jesus was born to die to be pierced for our transgressions, to be wounded for our iniquities, and by his stripes, people like you and me would be healed. His death was not an accident. Even though those who put him to death, put him to death with malice, and it was unjust from a worldly standpoint because he was an innocent man, his death was not a tragedy. That was his life's purpose. Jesus was literally born to die. Look at the next verse, Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There it is. Look at that word, fitting. Again, the writer of Hebrews going out of their way to make sure that the readers understand, the Hebrews, that, that, that they would understand this is, this is actually appropriate. Because people say this is not appropriate for God to be overtaken by any group of humans, for God to die, for God to be arrested, for him to die the death of a criminal. And so the writer goes out of his way saying, no, 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 this is, this is actually fitting. It's appropriate. It's, it's, it, it's, it's fitting that Jesus, creator God, by whom all things exist, in order to bring people to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So he's our perfect savior, that he would live a life as a human being, take on flesh, and then die in our place. And just as he had a literal physical birth, just like you and me, he would have a literal physical death just like you and just like me. And that's, here's why in our next point, point number two, King Jesus connects us to the source of our sanctification, God himself. Look at Hebrews chapter two and verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers, now you got to understand this truth. This is a really deep and exciting truth, and it has a bearing on you and me. First, look at it in verse 11. He who sanctifies, that's who? That is Jesus, right? He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who separates us. That's what sanctified means. We become separated. We become set aside. He who sanctifies, that's Jesus. Now look at verse 11. And those who are sanctified, that is who? That's people like you and me. That's believers. That's Christians. He who sanctifies, Jesus, those who are sanctified, that's believers, all have one source. In the Greek, it says all are of one. So the writer of Hebrews shows us that the babe in the manger who was born to die, the one who saves us, the one who sanctifies us, you and him have the same heavenly father. You and him have the same source, right? All are of one source. In this sense, the Bible declares us as equals, as co-heirs with Christ, positionally speaking. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source, and that is God our Father. Now, I want to see if I can explain this to you from another text of Scripture as well. So keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 2 and go to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you get there, let me just explain to you a little bit about sanctification, okay? Because I'm going to suggest to you three types of sanctification so that you can understand the differences and understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, okay? And this isn't in your outline. It came to me after I put the outline together, so take good notes. Three types of sanctification, all beginning with the letter P, okay? Now, the first is what we're calling positional sanctification, right? That positionally, we are separated. We hold a a different position from the rest of the world because we've been saved. We've been set aside. So positionally, before God, watch this, the person who got saved four minutes ago and the person who was saved 44 years ago, they're equal. Does that make sense? Hold the same place. So positionally, the thief on the cross and those who've been following Jesus for all of his earthly ministry, same hold the same position, go to the same place. That's positional sanctification. And then there is 
progressive sanctification, where we go throughout our lives becoming more like who we are, right? And the the example I typically use is me signing up my son for a baseball team, okay? Positionally, he's on the team. I've paid my dues. I've signed him up. But practically speaking, he has to learn how to play the game, right? He has to learn how to swing, how to catch a fly ball, how to play that game. So positionally, the minute I sign him up, I've paid my dues, I've signed him up, he's on the team. Practically, he's going to become a baseball player throughout the time that he spends time on the team, that spends time practicing. Positionally, sinners like you and me, if we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're as saved as we'll ever be the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Positionally, right? Because our dues have been paid by Jesus, okay? We have said, I believe. We've been given that gift of faith. Then practically, we live our lives becoming more and more like the position that we hold. More and more like Jesus Christ. Positional sanctification, practical sanctification, and the last one I'm just calling perfect sanctification, which happens in heaven, Right? It's what President Bush is experiencing now. It's what anyone who's gone before us in the Lord is experiencing, where they are not going to be any more sanctified. You can't be more separate from the world than being in heaven. Right? You can't be more like Christ than receiving a glorified body, and we're not going to sin, and there's no more tears, and there's no more suffering, there's no more illness, there's no more death. Positional, progressive, and perfect. Hebrews 10 and verse 14 says this. Look at verse 14. For by what? A single offering he has perfected, For all time, those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus, who was what? Born to die, in so doing has removed forever the possibility of you being positionally sinful. Does that make sense? Positionally, you're you're, you're positionally secure. If you're a believer... You are positionally secure in Christ. You might say, I don't really feel that perfect. Like, I can look back on my life. I can look back on my week. I can look back on the drive here this morning. I'm not perfect. Okay, I'm not, I'm not perfect. And I understand that. And I'm not saying you are. And I'm certainly not. But here what we see is the truth that by a single offering, Hebrews 10 and verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so you need to understand what Christ has accomplished, what that babe in the manger has accomplished for believers like you and me. That as a Christian, you are not perfect, but he who sanctifies, back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us what? Brothers, siblings, we are family. He's not ashamed to call us his family. So Christmas celebrates that bridge, right, that Christ has made between us and God, connecting us to that very same source he has for life and power. We share the same heavenly father as Jesus and are part of the family of God. And you also need to realize that we have access to the same help that Jesus did. That we have access to the same help. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you notice he didn't, he didn't like to say, he didn't tap into his deity to bring him comfort. Right? He didn't call down lightning from heaven, do something that you and I can't do. So I'm not suggesting that you try to walk on water. That would result in you not being like Jesus, but perhaps seeing Jesus, like face to face and dying. So I'm not suggesting that you do the things that Jesus did in that sense, because those are miraculous and those were 
for him to do. But when Jesus needed help, do you know what he did? He prayed. There's nothing Jesus did for that help that you and I can't do. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted, do you know what he did? He called to mind Scripture. He didn't obliterate the devil by snapping his fingers and watching him turn into dust. I mean, that would have been really cool, but we would look back on it and think, wow, that's really cool and really something I can't do. Like, I snap my fingers, no one turns to dust. It would be really cool. I've got some people on my mind. But that's not something we can do. When Jesus needed help in his earthly life, he modeled what you and I can do. We can pray. We can hide scripture in our hearts and our minds that we might not sin. We have access to the same hope, right? That's what verse 11 says, that he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified have the same source. We have access to the same hope, the same help, the same comfort, the same guidance that our, and this is not irreverent, that our brother, right, that our sibling, Jesus, our co-heir, we have access to that same source, that same power that Jesus Christ did on earth. We have that same helpline. That Jesus did. The same Heavenly Father who loves us and is for us and delights in us because of what Christ did for us. So Jesus was born to die. And Jesus connects us to the source of our sanctification, God himself. And our next point, King Jesus shatters the bondage that we have to sin and our fear of death. And look at Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I want to point out two words that you see in verse 14. The first word that I want to point out to you is share. See that? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That Greek word in the original writings is kinonia. It's the word for fellowship, for partnership, for communion. We have this in common together. So you meeting someone who's a Christian that you had never met in your life, you have a ton going for you because if there's one thing you have in common is you both know that you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You may not have known them in, in, in a very real sense. You have more in common with them than someone who is not a believer that you've known for your whole life. We share that in common. So that's fellowship. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So this verse is not talking about what we share spiritually, but what we share obviously, right? What we share physically. All of us, we're all flesh and blood. It's like you look into the person next to you and saying, well, you're flesh and blood. Oh my gosh, me too. Ah, high five. So you're, you share in flesh and blood. This is something that's common. We share in that together. But I want to look at another word. It says partook, right? Do all of you have that in your Bibles? In verse 14, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Okay, that's a Greek word, meteko. And that means taking hold of something that is not naturally one's own. So we all likewise share in flesh and blood, right? You look next to the person, we're all flesh and blood. Yeah, you could feel, wow, flesh and blood. Okay, we all have that same thing. But Jesus 
partook of the same things. That's reminding us that what? Before Jesus was born, he was not flesh and blood. He fully existed in, in, in eternity past. He's present at creation. He was always there as the second person of the Trinity. But he partook of flesh and blood in the womb of Mary, becoming a man for sinners like you and me so that he could die, right? Jesus was born to what? Born to what? Born to die. That's the reason he was born. So he took on flesh and blood so that he actually could die. Like, well, the first thing i got to do is figure out how I can die. He didn't have to figure out anything. This is euphemistic. So, well, well, I I can't even die. I'm God. I need to put on flesh and blood so that I can die. I need to become a human so that I could die like a human. So you and I are flesh and blood, but the second person in the Trinity was not until Christmas, when he was born, entering the world just like you and I did. Why? Verse 14, that through death he might destroy... The one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's an important word. That he might what? Destroy. Not that he might like wound, kind of kick aside, trip, mock, make fun of, poke. No, destroy, obliterate, wipe out once and for all the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you say, but I don't know. I see people die. This past week, I'm reminded of death constantly. Flags at half-mast. Every time I look around, I'm reminded of, yes, a great life that was lived by the former President Bush, but also the fact that he died. If, if, if death is on a leash, it's a stinking long one, right? Like I'm seeing people die all the time. How did he destroy death? Verse 14 says, the one who has the power of death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So we still die, but we still live. And as believers, death doesn't become our end, it becomes our passage from this life to the next. And therefore, he destroys the one who has the power of death. So yeah, we still die. That's still very hard. But we don't stay dead. And that's why Jesus was born. To die so that when you and I die, we might live. And verse 15 says that he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivers us. He emancipates us. He sets us free. Free from the bondage of sin and death, and we therefore have no reason to fear death. It's coming for each and every one of us, but there's no reason for us to fear it. Christmas celebrates the victory that Jesus had over Satan. That baby in the manger is King Jesus who just completely shatters any reason to fear and sets us free from slavery to sin and to death. But still, at the end of the day, you sit here and you think, I, I, I see it in the text. I get it. I don't know if I feel it. Okay, And that's, you know, well, ignore your feelings. Right, you should ignore your feelings. But it's still really hard because you say, I don't know if I feel that. Because at the end of the day, let's face the facts. President George Herbert Walker Bush has died. He's not here anymore. And if there's one thing we're reminded of this past week, if you had any, any connection at all to any of the events, the state funeral, 
read anything about him, we're reminded that this was a man who led an extraordinary life of 94 years. 73 of those years were spent as a husband. 72 of them were spent as a dad. 37 of them were spent as a grandfather, and even some of those as a great-grandfather. He spent four years serving our country in World War II, during which he was shot down into the Pacific Ocean, where he floated on a raft until he was rescued by a submarine. Only to come back and attend Yale... Sure, I made it back. I think I'll attend Yale. He was a congressman for four years, ambassador to the United Nations for almost two years, chairman of the Republican National Committee for almost another two years. And then he spent some time as chief of the U.S. liaison office to China, and I don't know what that means. (laughs) He spent 355 days as director of the CIA, eight years as a vice president, four years as a president. I mean, like, what did you do this week? Right? Like, you read that and you're like, wow, this is an impressive resume. We got our tree up yesterday. (laughs) And much could be said of his life and his legacy. I mean, this was an extraordinary man. And the honors that were paid to his memory were outstanding throughout the state funeral that took place last week. The tributes and the respect that was paid to him and his family were unbelievable. And I don't know if you're like me, but you couldn't help but watch the thing and look at members of his family and people you've never even seen before that you don't even know and just think a little bit higher of them knowing that they were in some way related to this man. You know what I mean? This person could be a complete louse. We have no idea what they're really like. But you know what? Just somehow you have some connection to this great man, so I just kind of want to just like wave at you. Like, like you just think highly of this person because they're connected to this greatness. Throughout the entire service, he was President George Herbert Walker Bush. He was sometimes referred to as President Bush. Sometimes as President Bush 41, separating him from his son. Oh, his son also was a two-term president. Family. Referred to as President George Herbert Walker Bush. Sometimes referred to as President Bush. Sometimes referred to as Bush 41. But there was one point in the service when someone, during a time of prayer, who was not a blood relative to him, referred to him as... Our brother, George. This person was not a blood relative to me. He was not a sibling. But another member of the body of Christ. And prayed to God about our brother, George. And at that point in the service, he was not. President George Herbert Walker Bush. He was not former President Bush. He was not President Bush or George Bush, but simply our brother George. Hebrews 2 and verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. 
You see, when it comes to who we really are in Christ, when it comes to how we think of one another in Christ as Christians, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if someone is, is ever holds any title, ever is called president or king or your majesty or anything else. All that matters in the end is this. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source and we are family. That he who was former President George Herbert Walker Bush is really our brother George. We are family. The playing field is leveled by Jesus Christ who has saved us, who has sanctified us. And the Savior and the saved all has one source. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And so George Bush, our brother George, lived an incredible life. And has died, but is not dead. Because those who are sanctified and he who sanctifies all have one source. And that's why Jesus was not ashamed to call him his brother, George. And that's the point. See, for most people, life becomes most anxious, most dreadful at the point of death. I mean, it's, it's coming for all of us one day or another, some of us sooner than others. And in a crowd our size, no doubt death is coming for some of us way sooner than perhaps we would think. And George Herbert Walker Bush was unbelievably courageous and a patriot and selfless and a noble man. But you need to understand this. That our brother George was not fearless in the face of death because of the life he lived, but because of the death Jesus died. Our brother George faced death fearlessly with confidence and peace because God shattered the fear of death through a baby born in Bethlehem, a baby who was born to die. Now, you're likely a woman or a man who doesn't have a resume like our brother George. Pretty says, I'm sure you're great, love you. Right, but you probably don't have, you couldn't go down that list of things that you've done in that same way. God was providentially very kind and gracious to our brother George in some pretty unique and specific ways. And you're probably not like that and I'm not like that. We might see ourselves as just a somebody. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be saved from judgment just as our brother George was because you can believe in the baby who was born to die just as our brother George did. And in so doing, when he died, obliterated the fear of death so that our death is merely a passing from this life to the next. Where there is no more fear, no more suffering, no more Tears or worries and joy forevermore with the one who is not ashamed to call us family. Not ashamed to call us his brothers. We have that hope. But now you might hear me say this and say, I don't have that hope. All this believers have this believing in Jesus. 
I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. I'm not that person. I don't, like I'm thinking through it, but I don't really understand or believe. In fact, I might even be adamantly opposed to it. Well, you need to understand something else that the book of Hebrews says in chapter 9 and verse 27. In fact, why don't you turn there as we close? I want you to look to Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 27. Verse 27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You need to be reminded that you have an appointment, and it is appointment with death. Our brother George had his appointment almost nine days ago. Your appointment and my appointment has yet to come, evidenced by the fact that you're sitting here and I'm standing here and we're breathing. We don't know when that appointment is. It's not a fear tactic, woo, but it's just a fact. You're going to die and you know not when. I'm going to die and I know not when. And verse 27 says, as it is appointed for man to die, it also says to die how many times? To die once. It's not something I can get right the second time around. I'll believe next time. We die how many times? Once. And after that, the verse says comes what? Judgment. These are words that if you're not a believer will grip you with fear. Because you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know when I'm going to die. It's only going to happen once. And after that, judgment comes. Like there's no good news here. Merry Christmas, right? There's no good... You have an appointment with death that you only get one shot and after that is judgment. But we take great hope. We who believe take great hope in the fact that Jesus, who was born to die, and he who sanctifies us and we who are being sanctified have the same source. And so these words that grip you with fear, if you're thinking about an appointment of death and not knowing if you're ready, and then understanding that you only get one shot and then that judgment comes, and you hear these words and you think, these make me feel like not happy at all. You have to understand the hope of Christ and the peace that comes through the Christmas child, Jesus Christ, that if you believe in him, you believe that the life that he lived, you believe that he was born to die, And the life that he lived, which culminated in the death that he died for sinners like you and like me, you believe that that was enough to pay for your sins. And that as a result of his being born to die, and then having victory over the grave by rising three days later, you too will still face the grave and have a grave, but have victory over the grave. And death is a passage from this life to the next. And so if you're not a believer, you need help. You need hope. You need this babe that we're talking about, and you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because it is appointed for you to die once, and after that comes the judgment. But we who believe in Jesus, we don't fear that. We don't fear that because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ knowing that he's not ashamed of us. He's looking at me going, that's my, that's my brother. He's with me. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my brother. That's my brother. That's my sister. They're with me. And that he will usher us beyond death into everlasting life.
And if you are a believer, then be reminded today as the one who has conquered, arrested, and defeated death once and for all has made death a passage from this life to eternity in the heavens with our brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is not ashamed to call us family. Father in heaven, we come before you excited for what you have done, thankful for your grace and your mercy as shown to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and praying, Lord, that you would use the preaching of your word to glorify yourself in the lives of your people. Lord, would you use this as a time to call people unto yourself, that people would perhaps experience Christmas for the first time as a co-heir, as a brother of that Christmas child, as a sister of baby Jesus, knowing that we are his adopted family for life and that we will have life eternally and need not fear death. Do that, we pray, for your name's sake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.